What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Maylari. So tonight, uh, I wanted to do my show at 7 to 8. Unfortunately, I had to go to an event from 7 to 8 o'clock, and then I checked out BC's basketball game after that. So it is a later show tonight. We're starting at 9.50 p.m. So uh, tough game for BC basketball. I went to check that game out. They ended up losing to UNH. Uh, New Hampshire came to town. BC, honestly, talent-wise, BC should win these games. But I don't have a great feeling going into this game. I thought UNH would cover the 14.5-point line easily. I thought they'd cover that. UNH heading into the, this game was 2-5 and five on the year. They lost five games in a row. Uh, but honestly, at the end of the day, I knew BC struggles against UMaine as a heavy favorite. BC now, we're not going to be heavy favorites in many games unless we're playing Stonehill, Maine, Holy Cross, or UNH. So at the end of the day, I think when BC is a heavy favorite, it just doesn't work in their favor. So I saw that 14.5-point line. I thought UNH would cover that easily. And I had a feeling UNH would win this game just because if you look at it, BC hasn't won a game by more than 10 points this year besides once. So that 14.5 points, I knew they'd cover. And then I thought about if BC has injuries, UNH being a heavy underdog, that plays to your advantage. When you're a heavy underdog, you come in with a chip on your shoulder. It, it happens in all sports. College basketball, college football, NBA, NHL, MLB, NFL, anything. When you're an underdog in any situation, whether it's sports or just in life in general, you play harder because you want to prove people wrong. So I thought UNH would have a good game tonight. And I, I honestly, at the end of the day, as I said, I thought they'd cover that 14.5 points easily. Not only did they cover that 14.5 easily, they won the game in overtime too. And Clarence Daniels, UNH's leading scorer, coming into the game averaging 14 points per game and 11.4 rebounds, hit a huge three. Drilled a three at the end of regulation with 1.3 seconds left to not only tie the game, but to send it to overtime, BC ends up missing a shot with 1.3 seconds to go. A half-court shot from Jaden Zachary. Game goes to overtime. And from the looks of it, you had to know UNH was going to win this game just because they had all the momentum in the world. Just being in the game for UNH, having it be a tie score at halftime, 35-35 at half, having the second half be 29-29, uh, and if you look at it, 64-64 all, you had to think in overtime they'd have the advantage. They tied BC in the first half. They tied BC in the second half. You had to think in overtime, UNH had all the momentum in the world. They were going to win this game. Clarence Daniels shot 13 and 19 from the floor. 34 points total for him. He had 14 rebounds, including three offensive boards. And honestly, as I said, he had one of the biggest shots of the game. And there's something about him that he played with. He just played with the mentality of like a fearless mentality. Fearless mentality. It was 4 or 5 from 3. Added 11 rebounds defensively, 3 offensive rebounds, 14 rebounds overall. Had a steal, and also had 4 uh, personal fouls as well. So he plays pretty aggressive. He shot 13 and 19 from the floor. UNH overall shot 38% from 3. As a BC, though, which UNH also had 20 points as well from a guard, Nick Johnson. He had a very good game, 20 points for him. He shot 9 of 11 from the free throw line and 5 14 from the floor. But... Also added eight rebounds as well, two, two assists and three steals. But if you look at what UNH did, they dominated on the offensive class. Dominated. And if you look at their stats, it was 17-17 in offensive boards, which it's even offensive boards-wise. But what UNH did with those offensive boards, with those second-chance points, was huge. Was huge. And I don't have a number of how many points they had off second-chance points, but my guess would be they had at least four or five buckets off of those 17 Offensive rebounds. And those four or five buckets coming in the second half. They looked great in the second half, UNH. Great. And BC struggled from three. Shot three of 21 from three. 14.3% from the three-point line. They were out-rebounded by UNH 46-41. to 41. 
There were only nine assists for UNH in the game, seven for BC. Neither team really spread the ball around much on offense. And UNH also had 15 turnovers to BC's 10. So BC had five less turnovers and still lost this game. UNH shot 42% from the floor, BC only 39%. As of BC in scoring-wise, they were led in scoring by Jaden Zachary. He shot 3 of 14 from the floor, 1 of 7 from 3. Abysmal game from him. Uh, Shooting-wise, he was 7 of 8 from the three point uh, from the free-throw line, though. 1 of 7 from 3, 7 of 8 from the free-throw line, and 3 of 14 from the floor. Mason Madsen uh, had a tough game shooting-wise, uh, as I just said. Did not shoot well at all. Uh, 1 of 7 from the three-point line. 2 of 10 from the field, uh, and then overall 7 points. DeMont Lankford, once again, not his best game shooting. 4 of 11 from the floor, 0 of 2 from 3, and 10 points. And then BC got 10 points out of Prince Aligbe, freshman guard slash forward off the bench. Also added in 4 rebounds. He was 0 of 2 from 3. Didn't have the best 3-point shooting night. Uh, one of his 3s was a bad air ball with BC trying to tie the game uh, with a 3-point deficit uh, with under 30 seconds to go. But the story of that game was Clarence Daniels, the second, 13-19 from the floor. And if you look at what he did overall, it wasn't just shooting. I mean, he had 34 points, added 14 rebounds, a stale, three offensive boards, 4-6 on the free throw line. That kid's just a stud out there on the floor. And as I said, Nick Johnson as well added 20 points for UNH and eight boards. But that team just played with intensity, and just BC just could not keep up. UNH dominated the glass. They won the uh, rebounds battle by five rebounds. BC found themselves down by one, or up by one with 154 to go after Jaden Zachary free throw. They had a lead with under a minute and a half to go, two minutes to go. Still ended up losing the game, unfortunately. Uh, UNH hit free throws towards the end, even though overall they only shot. Uh, let's see what they shot as a team really quick. I think it was around 60%. 67% as a free throw uh, at the free throw line as a team. They hit their free throws uh, down the stretch. They did have some bad misses with three or four minutes to go. I mean, over time, uh, they hit their free throws and also hit some big shots as well. Uh, but as I said, I had UNH, I had UNH covering 14 and a half easily, and I thought at the end of the day uh, there was a good chance they found themselves in this game towards the end. That's why if I would have bet, which I didn't, probably would have went the UNH money line just because at the end of the day, UNH has a heavy advantage when you're an underdog. When you're an underdog, playing a big school like BC, a big school in New England, BC's probably the biggest basketball school in New England besides Providence, let's say. I know Harvard makes the tournament every now and then. Northeastern's been pretty good historically, but BC is the only Power 5 school in New England. And obviously, UMass Amherst is having a very good year basketball-wise. UMass Lowell is having a great year basketball-wise. But the only Power 5 school in all of New England is BC. So if you look at it, you had to think, with UNH coming in being 2-5 and five on the year, now being 3-5, and five, they lost 5 in a row heading into this game. And, and overall, I mean, UNH was struggling on the year. You had to think, though, with them being heavy underdogs, they'd come into this game with a chip on their shoulder. They did. They did. That team plays very hard. They fight for rebounds. They play hard in the paint. They dominate in the paint. I mean, they were getting layup after layup, uh, jumper after jumper, three-point after three-point. Three I mean, they were just hitting shots all around, but they dominated in the paint. And BC just found themselves down right away. I mean, they were down at one point with three minutes to go in the first half, found themselves down by five, ended up being tied at half, and then tied in the second half as well, and lost by three in overtime, 74-71. to uh, Tough game for BC. They will be playing Villanova in the... Never forget Tribute Classic at the Prudential Center in New Jersey on Saturday at 5 o'clock against Villanova. Villanova on the year 3-5. They've been struggling. BC falls to 5-5 five five on the year. As for UNH, though, coming into tonight, they really only had two wins on the year, and both of those wins are first and second games of the year against Fairfield and Brandeis. 
Now they'll be heading to St. John's this coming Saturday at 6 o'clock. St. John's being 8-1 and one on the year. Uh, that game will be at 6 o'clock at St. John's on FS2. And that's Fox Sports 2. Uh, UNH being 3-5 and five, now facing the 8-1 and one St. John's before playing St. Joseph's of Maine next Monday night at home at UNH. I like UNH, honestly, just like I like UMaine now. Even though I didn't bet on UNH like I bet on UMaine, they play with an intensity, and everyone knows I'm a Clippers fan. The Clippers, I became a fan of because they play with an intensity and play hard, and they play, take every possession like it's the last one of their career. They, like Every single possession, they act like as a national championship, you have to dive on the loose ball, you have to follow, you have to hit your free throws, you have to get that offensive board, you have to dive into the crowd to try to make that play, you have to dive on the ground to try to get that loose ball. They play every game hard. UMaine does that, UNH does that, and that's why I like UNH, and that's why I like UMaine. I'm not going to follow UNH for the rest of you. Just like I've been following UMaine and talking a lot about UMaine basketball, I'm going to stop talking about UNH basketball as well because they play a style of basketball that I'm a fan of. As a UNMaine, they're now struggling a little bit on the year. They find themselves now at 4-4. Four and four. They lost in the London Showcase to Maris, 62-61 on Sunday. That was a tough game. Woke up and caught the end of that game. Calentine's. Yet another good game for him. Shot only 5-13 to the floor, but added 11 rebounds and 12 points. Led them in scoring uh, with Justin Wright, uh, Jashante Wright-McLeish. I was going to say Justin Wright-Foreman, former uh, Hofstra Pride basketball player that played against Northeastern, but no, not him. I am talking about a guy in UMaine, uh, and that is, as I said, Jashante Wright-McLeish. He's been averaging eight points a game on the season, but in that game on Sunday against Marist, had a good game, 12 points off of two of seven shooting from three, five of 11 from the floor, and also added a couple rebounds. UMaine now, honestly, as I said, I, I like the way they play, but at the end of the day, they have been losing some games without they should win. They lost that game to Marist, even though they were, I think, a point underdog in that game. Uh, they lost to Fordham last week. They were heavy underdogs against Fordham. I think it was a nine-point line, which isn't a heavy, they're not heavy underdogs in that game. But Fordham going into that game was 7-1. and one. Uh, But UMaine found themselves up by 6 at half. Ended up being outscored by 11 points in the second half. Losing that game by 5 points. That game came down to the wire. UMaine just could not really close the game. Could not really hit point uh, hit shots in the second half. And they also struggled some 3. Only shooting 30% from the 3-point line. And overall, rebounds-wise, they were out-rebounded. Or they out-rebounded Fordham. Excuse me. Fordham out-rebounded them 35-29. Uh, UMaine shot just... 39% from the three-point line. It was uh, actually Fordham that shot 30% from the three-point line. UMaine shot 39% from the three-point line. Uh, excuse me there for messing that up. But UMaine found themselves in that game once again. I watched the first half of that game. We had an intramural game. Only got to watch the first half, really. Uh, and then caught the last minute or two. But they found themselves up in that game by six points at half. They played very strong, played very hard, and then just could not close during the second half. Really could not hit shots late down the stretch. And they lost to Brown as well uh, in their previous game. Before that game against Fordham, lost that game by seven. I believe they were underdogs in that game as well. Uh, that game was Brown favored by four and a half. UMaine lost that game by seven. Once again, UMaine found themselves covering that spread, though, only down by four points at half, being outscored, though, by three points in the second half, four points in the first half, losing that game. But Cowan Tynes was great in that game against Brown. 24 points, 11 to 13 shooting, elite game from him. He's been great all season. Uh, so I will be following UNH like I follow UMaine basketball. So that'll obviously be a ride for the rest of the year. Now, 
Uh, after talking about BC basketball and obviously UMaine basketball, UNH basketball, I'm going to transition to college football, talk a little bit about what's been going on there before I talk about the NBA uh, also uh, and then getting into the MLB as well. Uh, there's a lot to cover in sports, uh, so we'll see where we go here. It's going to be probably a, a lot uh, in this episode. probably won't be the most orderly episode I have since I haven't really done an episode now in a week and there's a lot to catch up on. So the biggest news in college football over the last week, besides the college football playoff, which I'm going to do an episode on all the bowl games at some point, give my predictions for the college football playoff. I won't be doing that now, probably in the next week or so. Uh, was Deion Sanders making the move from Jackson State, an FCS school, and HBCU college uh, football team. He makes the jump from there all the way to Colorado now, UC Boulder. Deion Primetime Sanders leaving the Jackson State program after three seasons. He led them to a 27-5 record. Two SWAC, SWAC, that's what it stands for, conference championships in a row. He will be competing against North Carolina Central in the uh, Celebration Bowl in two weeks. I don't know if he will be the head coach in that game, uh, but Jackson State will be playing against North Carolina Central in the Celebration Bowl in a couple weeks. As for what he's already done now with the Colorado program in only a week, he's already recruited Travis Hunter to Jackson State, the number one overall recruit. In the 2022 high school class, he got to Jackson State, wide receiver, number one overall recruit, got to Jackson State for a year. Now we'll be taking him, it seems like, to Colorado as well. Jackson State will be paying uh, only, I believe, half of the salary owed to uh, Deion Sanders since he's leaving another job. And then also Deion will be paying Jackson State $300,000 as a buyout. According to the Sports Business Journal, Deion Sanders will be getting a five-year deal with $29.5 million in base and supplemental salary. Sanders will make $5.5 million in the first year with annual raises of $200,000 per year and could make even more with incentives. Prior to this year, the most a Colorado University head coach ever made was $3.6 million, and that was former head coach Kyle Durrell, who was their former head coach this past year. Uh, that was how much he made as a salary in 2022. Dion will be making just about $2 million more than that with $5.5 million in his first year. As for the program, Colorado's been struggling. 1-11 record this past year, 1-8 in the Pac-12. Their lone win came against Cal in the sixth game of the year, finished the year with five losses in a row. They needed someone to turn this program around. They only have played in one bowl game since 2016, and that was in 2020. They have had five wins or less in six, six straight years. Six straight years with five wins or less. They only won nine games in the last three seasons combined. They have not won more than three games in the Pac-12 in a season since 2016. So they've been struggling heavily. They only have two bowl games in the last 15 years. They've only participated in two bowl games in the last 15 years. And I'll repeat, two bowl games in the last 15 years, which is abysmal. They have had a 500 or better record only two times in 15 seasons. So obviously, Sanders is coming into a situation that's not great in Colorado, but hopefully he turns it around for that program. Jackson State quarterback and Sanders' son, Shadur Sanders, will be the starting quarterback for Colorado. Sanders had 3,383 passing yards with 36 touchdowns and 6 picks with a 70.2% completion percentage this past year and a 158.5 passer rating, along with five rushing touchdowns. In 2021, Sanders had 30 passing touchdowns with eight interceptions, 3,231 passing yards, and also added in three rushing touchdowns. As I said, they're in talks to land Travis Hunter from Jackson State. 
Deion Sanders told the Colorado team in his press conference, his first meeting with the team, he told the team to get ready to jump in the portal, basically, because he's bringing his Louis, which I think he's referring to as Louis Vuitton bag, meaning his guys with him. Uh, and at the end of the day, that means a lot of those Colorado guys will be entering the portal, probably. Um, the first major hire that Jackson State head coach, now the head coach at Colorado, Deion Sanders has made, was bringing in Kent State head coach Sean Lewis as the Buffalo's offensive coordinator. That's for the Colorado team. They have the Colorado Buffaloes. He had two seven-win seasons as the Kent State head coach. He tried to get the U Cincinnati job, but Louisville head coach Scott Satterfield ended up landing that job over him. Overall, he had a 24-31 record at Kent State. He was 5-7 this past year. He had a 2-10 record in his first year, ultimately improved every year after that. The Golden Flashes were 7-6 in 2019 with a win in the Frisco Bowl. The, actually, the first win in Kent State history, in program history. The first win in program history he led them to. So very impressive. While I'm talking Kent State, they're losing their three best plays to the portal along with their head coach. They will be losing quarterback Colin Schley, who was an all-max selection. They're losing all-max selection running back Marquez Cooper. And then also losing all-max wide receiver selection Dante Sivas as well, all three of those guys entering the portal, along with Sean Lewis leaving them for the offensive coordinated position at Colorado. All in all, the portal for college football has been a disaster, honestly, if you look at it, because no guy's really staying loyal to the team they're in. Out of 13,000 players in the FBS, around 1,000 players right now in the transfer portal, including Boston College graduate quarterback Phil Jakovic will be transferring to Pittsburgh to reunite with Frank Signetti who is the head coach at Pittsburgh, former BC offensive coordinator. Phil Jakovic is from Pittsburgh, so now this is his hometown team. Wishing him well in his endeavors at Pittsburgh. Uh, honestly, at the end of the day, he was never the same with that injury. And I'm wishing him nothing but the best of luck, but he was not the same quarterback after suffering that injury midseason in 2021 in his senior season before coming back for his grad season. Now he'll be playing in his sixth year at the University of Pittsburgh, who the astounding quarterback was... Caden Slovis, he will be entering the portal as well. DJ Galele, started quarterback at Clemson over the last two years, was at Clemson for three years. He will be in the portal as well. So that's two big quarterbacks right there. Slovis at one point before his junior season or his senior season at USC, I believe it was his junior season, he was projected to be around a top 10 to 15 pick uh, in, his, in the uh, way too early NFL 2022 draft projections by Mel Kuyper and then also uh, Todd McShay. Unfortunately, he ended up having a bad 2021 season uh, at USC before transferring to Pittsburgh in 2022. Uh, didn't do a great, really, in his 2022 senior season. Now he'll be using his last year eligibility in the transfer portal. As a DJ Uangalele, he lost his job to Cade Klubnik. He's a top recruit, quarterback to Clemson. He ended up playing uh, every single drive, besides, I believe one or two of them, in that game for Clemson this past weekend in the ACC Championship. Clemson, Clemson ends up winning that game uh, in a big win, which I'll be recapping a lot of those games at some point, hopefully, but uh, it won't be right now. But DJ, DJ Uyunglele is the biggest uh, quarterback probably right now in the transfer portal, uh, even though they didn't have the best season. Uh, now I'm going to transition uh, to the NBA, give some talks about the Celtics, the Clippers, uh, and the Miami Heat as well before jumping into uh, maybe talking about uh, the MLB, uh, what went on in the MLB inaugural draft uh, lottery tonight, what went down there, break down who has what pick, 1 through 18, and then also talk a little bit about the NFL over the past week. 
My phone currently is on 10%, which I will be recording on that. So at the end of the day, whenever my phone gets to about 3 or 4%, I probably will cut this episode just so it uh, saves in time, just so I don't lose everything. So I'm going to jump to the NBA. Uh, the Celtics on the year uh, hold the best record in the NBA at 25. I'm going to break down the last few games. The Celtics, they lost Friday night to the Miami Heat in Jimmy Butler's return to the lineup. Jimmy did what he always does in big games and big situations. Woke up in crunch time in the fourth quarter and overtime. Carried everyone around him as he always does to a big win. The Heat won that game 120-116 to 116 in overtime, as I said. Tyler Harrow was electric in that game, shooting 6-10 of 10 from the three-point line, 10-19 from the floor with 26 points, 5 rebounds, 3 assists, and 3 steals. I'm a big Jimmy Butler and Tyler Harrow fan. Uh, as you guys know, I'm a Clippers fan as well. I like the Celtics, but uh, the Clippers are my team, so I, at the end of the day, I usually root uh, for my guys and Jimmy Butler, I was happy to see him have a good game. 25 points, 15 rebounds, 3 assists, a block, and a steal. Jalen Brown had 37 points, 14 rebounds, and 5 assists in that game for the Celtics. He did have 5 turnovers in that game. Jason Tatum also added 5 turnovers as well. Jason Tatum had a bad game. 14 points of 5 of 18 shooting and over 7 from 3 with 4 of 6 shooting from the free throw line in that game. Tatum's going to have cold nights even though a lot of the time he does come up big. The issue with the Celtics right now is that even though They've had so much success shooting the three-point ball in the season, shooting 40.4% from the three-point line, which is number one in the NBA. You're not going to stay that hot all season. And I think they're becoming too reliant on the three-point shooting. And obviously, yes, if you're shooting 40% from the three-point line, that's fine taking three-pointers, but you're not going to shoot 40% every single game. That's just a reality. They need to find consistent scoring in the paint. You can't just keep shooting threes every single night because you're going to have cold games. That's a reality of the NBA. You are going to have cold games or cold stretches. And for the, a lot of the NBA Finals last year, you look at it, the first few games were Grant Williams and Al Horford and Derek White, they were hitting threes. Game one, they were electric. Then after that, they were non-existent on the offensive end, cooling off heavily and not shooting well at all. And I think that's the thing. We're becoming too reliant on the three-point shooting, and that's just not going to last the entire season. But overall, the Celtics have been shooting great as a whole. 49.4% from the floor, which is number one in the NBA. 84.9% from the free throw line, which is also number one in the NBA. But as I said, you do not want to rely on three-point shooting every single night, like with the Warriors with Steph Curry and Klay Thompson in their primes and the Splash Brothers shooting threes, non-stop drilling threes. You're not going to hit threes like that night in and night out like those guys. Even though we have, for the first 25 games of the season, the Celtics have been shooting so well. I think over an 82-game season and then come the playoffs, you're not going to have nights where you're shooting 55 60% from three every night. That's just not going to happen every single night. So the Celtics need to find a way to find consistent scoring in the paint. But as of now, they're playing very good basketball, even though, as I said, they're relying on the three-point shooting too much. They beat the Raptors last night after beating the Nets uh, over the weekend. They have two wins in a row. They won that game over the Raptors, 116-110, to 110, 31 points for Jason Tatum off 11 of 24 shooting. 5 of 10 from the three-point line, 12 rebounds. Jalen Brown, 22 points, 8 rebounds, 8 assists. Had zero turnovers for a second straight game. He had zero turnovers in that Nets game. And then zero turnovers as well in last night's game against the uh, Toronto Raptors. Blake Griffin contributed a ton off the bench with 13 points and 8 rebounds. The next game of the Celtics will be tomorrow night in Phoenix at 10 o'clock. That could be a tough game. Phoenix, 16-8 on the year. Number one record in the West. Coming off a 19-point loss last night to the Dallas Mavericks in Dallas. So you got to think they want to return to their home court with a win. Uh, should be a good game, though. While I was talking about the Miami Heat, I forgot to mention Tyler Hero, who had a huge first half tonight in the Miami Heat game, which I'm going to break down what his stats look like in the first half. In the first half, he had 
21 points off 7 of 7 shooting, 2 of 2 from the three-point line, and 5 of 5 shooting from the free throw line. The Miami Heat still somehow lost that game 116 to 96 tonight, despite Tyler Hero having a great game overall. 34 points, 6 assists, 3 rebounds, 12 of 17 shooting from the floor, 2 of 4 from 3, and 8 of 8 from the free throw line. They still find a way to lose that game. They didn't have Jimmy Butler, but they were outscored in the second half heavily uh, by that uh, Detroit Pistons team, 69-46, to losing that game by 20 points to the 7-19 Pistons. The Heat now find themselves at 11-14 on the year. But as I said, Tyler Hero having a huge game against the Celtics on Friday night, uh, having 23 points in that game all in all, and then adding in a 26 points in that game, and then returning to the lineup against the Memphis Grizzlies, having 23 points, 13 rebounds, and 5 assists on uh that was Monday night and then tonight playing the Detroit Pistons at home and scoring and having a big game, uh, having 34 points with six assists and three re- rebounds. Uh, Tyler Hero has been playing great over the last few games. He's earned that 44 uh, years and $130 million contract that he got in the offseason. Uh, so one last thing I want to talk about in the NBA are the L.A. teams. The L.A. Clippers got the return of Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, and Luke Kennard last night. All three of those guys have been out for a while with injuries. The Clippers, Clippers have been without the two best players, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, and then also a great role player who actually led the NBA in three-point shooting uh, last year, Luke Kennard. Last night, the Clippers won a game that eked out a win, 119-117 to over the Charlotte Hornets. Great to see Kawhi Leonard back on the floor. He actually hit the game-winning shot. Great to see him healthy yet again. All in all, he had 16.6 rebounds and two uh, assists. As of John Wall, 12 points, 5 rebounds, 12 assists. Paul George, 19.7 rebounds, 3 assists. And then Nick Batum had a plus 23 rating, which was the best on the clip, as he always does good things out there. All in all, for Batum, 13 points, 5 rebounds, and assist. On the year, the Clippers are 14 and 11, 6 and 4 record in their last 10 games, have been carried in the absence of Paul George and Kawhi Leonard and Luke Kennard. They've been carried by Reggie Jackson, Reggie Jackson, former BC Eagle, Norman Powell, and Marcus Morris. They've been playing 500 basketball without Paul George and Kawhi Leonard in a tough Western Conference, which is very impressive and shows how great of a coach that Tyron Lue is. They will be traveling to the 5 and 20 Orlando Magic in a game tomorrow night. We'll see how that goes. Hopefully, the Clippers get a win. As for the Lakers, the other L.A. team, they've won eight of their last 10 games, now 10 and 12 on the year. Anthony Davis has been putting up superstar numbers for that Lakers team. They are now 8-3 eight and, eight and three in their last uh, 11 games. They lost tonight 116-102. to 102. Uh, They were without uh, Anthony Davis. Besides eight minutes, we ended up leaving the game with an illness, flu-like symptoms. He only had 1.3 rebounds and two assists in tonight's game, eight minutes of action. They ended up losing that game by 14 points to the Cleveland Cavaliers. LeBron James had 21.17 rebounds, four assists, a block, and a steal. Russell Westbrook, 16 points, 3 rebounds, 3 assists, 2 blocks off 6-13 shooting, and 4-5 or five shooting from the free throw line. Uh, they won 8 of 10 of their last games heading into tonight. We're 10-12 on the year, now 10-13, unfortunately. Anthony Davis was putting up superstar numbers over his last 10 games heading into tonight. 34.2 points per game in his last 10 games, with 15.4 rebounds per game and 2.9 blocks per game over his last 10 games played. As I said, he missed the remainder of tonight's game. That's obviously a big reason that Clippers team lost to the Cavs in LeBron's return yet again to Cleveland. Uh, it's not his first time back in Cleveland, but every single game LeBron plays in Cleveland, I'm sure it's meaningful to him. I'm sure he wanted to get that win tonight. Anthony Davis won the Western Conference Player of the Week award. 
winning three out of four games, holding a 3-1 and one record for the Lakers, averaging 37.8 points per game in four games. Played over the last week, 13 rebounds and 3.25 blocks per game. He's been electric all around on the offensive end and defensive end. He's just been playing great basketball overall, which is great for that Lakers team. Excited to see what they do now down the stretch and they make a big move for the trade deadline that will be coming in February. They obviously have to make some moves at some point. So uh, we'll see what the Clippers and the Lakers do. The Clippers really just need to be healthy. They don't really have to make another move. I think they've been getting great minutes out of their backup center, Moses Brown, and then also uh, getting really good minutes out of Musa Diabate, who is a draft pick, first-round pick uh, in this year's past year's draft uh, out of Michigan. He was a one-and-done at Michigan on the year for the Clippers, averaging 4.2 points per game and 3.8 rebounds. In the game against the Jazz on November 30th, he had 11 points on 4 of 8 shooting with 8 rebounds. And then against the Kings on December 3rd, a couple games ago, 4 points and 5 rebounds in 19 minutes of action. Pretty good player uh, and has been playing good basketball as of late, getting minutes. As for uh, the MLB, which now I'm going to get into uh, what's been going on in the MLB. The inaugural MLB draft lottery was tonight. The Sox ended up with a 14th pick. They didn't win the lottery for top t- six pick. And I'm going to break down how the draft lottery goes. Uh, it's a new format this year to try to prevent teams from tanking. Uh, all in all, which I'm going to break down the MLB.com article, which was written by Anthony uh, Castro Vince, uh, which if I butcher that name, I apologize. He wrote how the MLB draft lottery will be going down. So I'm just going to read what he was saying. Uh, it would be the all 18 non-postseason teams from the 2022 playoff uh, in regular season. So 18 teams out of the 2022 season that didn't make the playoffs would be thrown into a lottery, all of them having a chance at the first overall pick. The first six spots of the first round were determined in the draft. That's the most of any sport. The NBA lottery covers all four sports, uh, all four spots, in the top four, while the NHL draft covers just the top two. Uh, the NFL does not hold a draft lottery, uh, obviously, so the worst pick in the NFL just gets the top overall pick. Uh, as for teams, uh, the Nationals had the number one chance at the first overall pick, just like the Oakland, uh, Oakland Athletics and the Pittsburgh Pirates, all at 16.5%. And then the 18th overall team in the lottery was the Brewers, who had an 88-76 and 76 record on the year with a 0.2% chance at the first overall pick. If you don't get a top six pick and win the lottery, you end up just getting the pick that correlates to what you have uh, chances-wise. So for the Red Sox, they were 78-84 in the season with a 0.8% chance of the number one overall pick. The Red Sox did not win the lottery, for a top six pick in the draft, so they end up just getting the 14th overall pick, which they held just based off their record. Uh, and that's just how it goes. You don't get your top six pick. You just get the pick based on what your record is. Um, so at the end of the day, this is how the draft shook out. The lottery shook out. The Pittsburgh Pirates have the first pick. The Nationals the second pick. And then 3 through 18 is the Tigers at three, Rangers at four, Twins at five, Oka Days, who had been tied at the first overall pick odds with just the Nationals and the Pirates. Fall all the way to the sixth pick. Tough break for them in the draft lottery. Uh, then the seventh overall pick in this year's draft will be the Cincinnati Reds. Eighth, Kansas City Royals. Ninth, Colorado Rockies. Tenth, Miami Marlins. Eleventh, LA Angels. Twelfth, the Arizona Diamondbacks. Thirteenth, Chicago Cubs. Fourteen, Boston Red Sox. Fifteen, Chicago White Sox. 16th, San Francisco Giants, and then 17, uh, Baltimore Orioles with the Milwaukee Brewers rounding out the draft lottery with the 18th overall pick. 
As the MLB, this is probably the last thing I will cover in this episode since I'm already on 6%, and I do not want to lose uh, my phone uh, and have this not record. We'll see. Once I get to 3%, that's probably when I'll call it. But I know one last thing I will cover is the MLB uh, free agency period, uh, which it's been kicked off already. Obviously, you know Jacob DeGrom. I talked about that on my podcast a few days ago, him getting a five-year deal with the Texas Rangers. Justin Verlander will take his place with the New York Mets, getting a two-year, $86 million deal with a third-year vesting option. Basically the same contract that now his teammate, former teammate with the Detroit Tigers, now his current teammate with the New York Mets, will be getting. Uh, Scherzer signed a three-year deal. I believe it was three years and $130 million. Uh, it was. Let me see what Max Scherzer's contract was with the Mets. Just want to make sure I get that right. Verlander will just ultimately get that same contract. Three years, 130 is what Scherzer got. Verlander will be getting two years, $86 million, So $43 million per year with just $1, million, uh, one year less on the contract with a third year vesting option. As for Scherzer, coming off a Cy Young season, he's now a three-time Cy Young Award winner, 18-4 record uh, this past season with a 175 ERA and 185 strikeouts and 175 innings pitched for the Houston Astros team who won the World Series. He had a 175 ERA, which is a career best for him since 2017 when he had a 105 ERA in just five starts. Essentially coming off his best season, a 175 ERA is best over his whole career besides 2017 where he only made five starts. That's a big signing for the Mets. Uh, and they also uh, will probably, at the end of the day now, make a move to hopefully keep either Brandon Nimmo or, or Chris Bassett. Uh, I'm sure they're probably going to get one of those two guys back in a Mets uniform. Another big signing was shortstop Trey Turner, who is my number one overall player available on the uh, free agent market. He got an 11-year, $300 million contract with the Philadelphia Phillies, uh, which that's my prediction. It was was him going to the Phillies for less years. I think it was seven years, $245 million. Let me see if I got that math right. I think it was 245 for seven years at $35 million per year. Somewhere around there was my prediction which he ends up getting 11 years at $300 million, so he's getting $55 more million than I thought, but at four years extra, so he's only making $27 million per year rather than the 35 I thought he was going to get. But I did drill him going to the Philadelphia Phillies. Rookie shortstop Bryson Stott will be making the transition to second base for the Philadelphia Phillies. Over his career, Trey Turner's been a great player. Uh, 302 career hitter with, 30, uh, with 124 home runs, a 434 uh, total RBIs over his career with an 842 OPS. In seven years with the Washington Nationals and then a year with the Los Angeles Dodgers as well. A year and a half of the Dodgers after being traded to the Dodgers in a package with Max Scherzer at the 2021 trade deadline. Over his career, 842 OPS. This past year, 298 batting average of 21 home runs, 100 RBIs, and 27 stolen bases in 30 attempts. So 27 of 30. Stealing bases has great speed. Uh, one of the fastest plays in the MLB with an 809 OPS this past year for the Dodgers. In 160 games played, he had 194 hits, which is second most in the MLB to his former L.A. Dodgers teammate, Freddie Freeman. Now, while I'm speaking with the Dodgers, former MVP for the Dodgers, Cody Bellinger signed a one-year, $17.5 million deal with the Chicago Cubs. Former National League MVP, just never really found his footing over the last three years. Not sure what happened to him, 2020, 2021, and 2022. Never found his footing, and he's just been struggling. I hope he returns to form in Chicago. Obviously, he needs some help. They don't really have much stardom. Uh, on that roster, not really much star talent. So hopefully he gets back to Bay uh, and returns to the caliber we know he could. 
Uh, outfielder Mitch Hanniger will be signing a three-year, $43.5 million deal with the San Francisco Giants. The Red Sox were interested in him at one point, probably were outbid as they are with every single free agent. Hanniger was a Bay Area native growing up, so obviously maybe he just had an edge and wanted to go home and be in San Francisco. He had a 246 batting average, 11 home runs, and a 736 OPS this past year for Seattle. The Yankees will be bringing back general manager Brian Cashman on a four-year extension through the 2026 season. I know a lot of Yankees fans are split on whether or not they want Cashman back. Uh, but he will be back with the Yankees on a four-year deal, uh, being the general manager for another four years. And then the Phillies signed right-handed pitcher, Mets, uh, former Mets pitcher right-hander Taiwan Walker to a four-year $72 million deal. He was 12-5 and this past year for the Mets in 29 appearances with a 3-4 ERA a 3.49 ERA overall in 2022 for the Mets as a starter. And the Phillies also signed Matt Strom, relief pitcher for the Red Sox, this past year on a two-year, $15 million deal. So the Phillies overall got Trey Turner, Taiwan Walker, and then also adding in some bullpen help, getting uh, Matt Strom for their bullpen. So pretty good uh, so far for the Phillies, what they've been doing in the offseason. Uh, as for the San Francisco Giants, there are talks that they could get Carlos Correa, and that would be right with my prediction, and also Aaron Judge as well. There was a report today from MLB uh, Network uh, writer, John Heyman. He had Aaron Judge going to the Giants. He said it appears that Aaron Judge will be a San Francisco Giant. He ends up backtracking on that and saying he jumped the gun. I talk uh, studios tweeted as well that Aaron Judge was going to be a San Francisco Giant. I guess that's not thing official as well, uh, and that's not really uh, the case since nothing is official yet. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, but as of now, it looks like he is still a free agent and is still open to sign uh, with any teams, open to sign anywhere. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, last thing I want to talk about is the Boston Bruins. They had their first loss at home on the season yesterday, 14-1 now at home after losing last night in overtime to former head coach Bruce Cassidy, who's now with the uh, Vegas Golden Knights. The Bruins are down 3 to nothing, battled back, uh, tied the game up with a goal in the third period from Taylor Hall, end up losing the game in overtime 4-3. to uh, Tough game, but they were down 3 to nothing, and it shows they have dog mentality in them, just like the Clippers, finding themselves down in the game 3 nothing, never never giving up, never stopping, tying the game in regulation uh, with just about two minutes to go in the third period, uh, and then end up losing in overtime. But still get a point out of it, which is pretty good. Uh, the Bruins now... Uh, have had a tough stretch over the first half of the season. Hopefully things get easier for them uh, schedule-wise. Even though they're winning a lot of games, they still hold a great record. They're still playing a lot of good teams. That just shows how good the Bruins are right now. They're playing so many good teams, and they still hold a great record overall on the year, 23-1. and uh, And they will be playing the Colorado Avalanche on the road tomorrow night at 9 o'clock. The Avalanche winning the Stanley Cup last year, 13-9-1 uh, on the year. And even though the Bruins on the season are playing a hard schedule, it should get easier at some point, hopefully. They have the Coyotes after they play the Avalanche. Then they play the Knights again, but then we'll play the Islanders, another tough team. Then we'll play the Kings, but then we'll play the Blue Jackets, who are struggling this year, before play, uh, before playing the Panthers, Jets, Devils, Senators, uh, and then the Sabres. So they play the Senators, Dev, uh, Senators Sabres, uh, and the Blue Jackets, along with the Coyotes, four games over the next 12 games, or four of the next 10 games will be against four bottom teams in the NHL. So the schedule will get even easier, hopefully, even though with how hard the schedule has been, they still hold uh, the least amount of losses in the NHL, 23-1 on the year. The New Jersey Devils are currently number one in points on the year in the NHL with 43. They hold a 21-4-1 record on the year in 26 games played. The Bruins... 23 and 1 in 40 uh, in 24 games played with 41 points and an 854 win percentage or point uh, percentage which is number one in the NHL 854 point percentage uh, with a 23 and 1 record overall 
Anyways, that will close out tonight's, ep- tonight's episode. My phone's on 3%. Definitely want to make sure this saves and I do not end up losing it. So I'll record another episode later on in the week. But as always, thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. As always, I appreciate it. Hope you guys have a good one. Quick shout out to the Keith family, the O'Malley family. Uh, shout out to my parents, my family, my siblings. Thank you guys always so much for listening. Shout out to the sports guru, Mike Curley, the legend, Mark Walsh. All my friends and family were listening. Shout out to Auntie Lisa as well. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen to this. The Loftus family, the Key family, uh, you guys are always listening, as well as the O'Malley family. So thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I hope you guys have a good one. Thank you.